a reading from Luke 9. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. The word of the Lord. Reading from Luke 10. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead, uh, on ahead of him two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way, behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide. For the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is said before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions, and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. 
In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but you di and did not hear it. The Gospel of the Lord. Uh, Almighty Father, uh, we just read how Jesus uh, says in a remarkable statement that uh, he saw Satan fall like lightning. Father, will you throw down uh, every hint of evil that might distract us from your truth? Uh, every lie that might distract us, every uh, temptation that might lure us. Father, we desire that we might be set free like Jesus loves to set people free. So pour out your Holy Spirit and will you do that now? In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Um, and uh, so we're going to look, we need you to keep both those readings in front of you. Uh, that's really just one long reading. We just broke it in half to kind of uh, let there be two voices. Um, but keep them in front of you. So that's uh, uh, page seven, eight, and nine. There's a lot going on in this reading. Uh, and so what I'm going to do is I'm going to I'm going to uh, articulate. I'm going to say a theme that we're going to trace through it. And it might not make a lot of sense, but then that hopefully it will by the end. Okay, here 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 it is. Um, <clears throat> the direction of your joy will determine to great extent the direction of your life. The direction of your joy will determine the direction of your life. Now let me set this up, and I'm going to do that by asking questions. Think about Jesus for a minute. Um, what is it that animated Jesus? Meaning, what is it that drove Jesus? What is it that motivated Jesus? Uh, what moved Jesus to do the remarkable things that Jesus did? That's one set of questions, but then there's another set of questions about us. Uh, what is meant to motivate the Christian, the follower of Jesus? Uh, what must mo uh, animate us? What must drive us? Uh, what is it that makes a Christian do the things that a Christian must do? What animates Jesus? What animates uh, the believer? Um, those are two questions I want to have hanging in the air. And these are important questions for all of us. Um, if you're here and you do not uh, think of yourself as a Christian or you're trying to figure out whether or not following Jesus is a good idea, these are really important questions for you. And here's why. If you understand what animates Jesus, what motivates a Christian, it gives you the opportunity to kind of uh, take a look underneath the hood. 
to, to, to look at what it is that uh, gives energy to the Christian life. And if you can have a, a sense of how that works, uh, it'll give you great insight onto uh, whether or not this is a ship you want to sail on. But on the other hand, if you are a Christian, maybe you've been a Christian for a very, very long time, these are really important questions for you as well. Um, it is possible, sadly common, to spend uh, lots of years in church uh, to develop the exterior life of Christianity, and yet despite that, never deeply experience the inner reality that gives life to everything else. So it's an important question for all of us. What is it that animated Jesus? What is it that must animate us as his followers? And I want to show you that the answer to both in a deep way is joy. Uh, however, it's a specific kind of joy. It's a joy that's different than most types of joy that we experience. So the joy that animates Jesus and that animates the Christian life is not the joy that comes from, for instance, a comfortable life. Don't you want a comfortable life? I do. But that's not this joy. In fact, the joy that Jesus, that animates Jesus, is a joy that often leads us into suffering, not away from it. And the joy that we're going to talk about is not the joy that comes from uh, achievement and uh, power and success, uh, good as those things can be, but actually, uh, achievement and success and power can sometimes, if we're not careful, sabotage the kind of joy that we're going to be talking about. It's a very unique type of joy. The joy that animates Jesus and the joy that's meant to direct and animate the Christian life um, is not based upon circumstance and it's not based upon achievement. It's not even based upon things like family. The thing that makes it so unique is that it's a joy that's directed in a very specific direction. It's the direction of Jesus' joy that we're going to talk about today. And that's what makes it so unique. It's pointed at his Father in heaven. And when we understand that, we'll be able to apply it to ourselves and we'll see why it uh, produces so much motivation and power and so forth. So the direction of your joy determines the direction of your life. So here's, here's, here's how we're going to explore that. First of all, I want to ask, um, uh, what was the direction of Jesus' joy and why does it matter? And then secondly, we're going to say, what is the direction of our joy uh, and how can that direction change? First of all, what's the direction of Jesus' joy? Go to the readings, go to the second reading, and go to the end. Let me set the stage here. Uh, Jesus, at this point in his ministry, he's starting to get popular. And he sends out 72 of his followers to go on a preaching tour. He sends them all over Palestine, and they preach, and they heal people, and they uh, cast demons out of people. All kinds of wonderful things are happening. And they're doing that because Jesus is going to be following them, and, and, uh, and they're, they're, they're kind of the warm-up act. And one of the things that this means is it means that Jesus is now leading a movement. It's not just a, he's not just kind of a one-off thing. And, 
And this is really important for us because this is part of the embryo of what later becomes the worldwide Christian movement of which this church is a part. So Jesus' followers, they go out kind of like ambassadors. Um, They do their thing, they preach, all this kind of stuff, and then they come back, and what we're picking up on here is the debrief meeting. And as they come back, they are just delighted. We're going to be looking at verse 17. They're just delighted. Um, People have been healed. Uh, People who have been deeply oppressed by evil have been liberated and reconciled and transformed. Um, These disciples, they preached and people responded. And you've got to consider just how intoxicating this experience must have been for them. Um, There's nothing quite like... Uh, working with a really close-knit team on an urgent mission at a high level of performance. Uh, Soldiers uh, that come back from war, um, despite the the trauma that they experience, they often report that the camaraderie that they experienced with their fellow soldiers, uh, the kind of united purpose, um, it, it often creates this remarkable, compelling experience that sometimes they never experience anything quite like it. And that's what Jesus' disciples are experiencing right now. This is just a high point. Verse 17, they're buzzing, and it says this. The 72 returned with joy. They're elated. And they say, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Now, they're excited. Full of joy. Excited by success. Excited by the power that they've experienced. And they're really enjoying their team. And Jesus doesn't squish any of that joy, but he does redirect it. Take a look at verse 20. He says, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. It's as if Jesus is saying something like this. Um, Yes, I know, this is very, very exciting. Um, However... Disciples, I need to warn you about something. It's as if Jesus says, I don't want you to attach your deepest joy too much to this present experience, intoxicating as it is. It's as if Jesus says, I want you to direct your joy to something deeper and more long-lasting. I want you to direct your joy to the unique privilege that you have in heaven. Your names are written in heaven. Rejoice in that. It's as if Jesus says. Because the direction of your joy determines the direction of your life. Now, why why is he saying all this? And what does it mean to direct their joy to their names being in heaven? Well, it's almost as if Jesus anticipates that question, and he begins to model the direction of his own joy. Look at verse 21. In that same hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. Now, pause. Can you see the direction of Jesus' joy? It is laser-focused on his Father. Now, if you grew up in church, you may be used to calling God Father, but that's weird in this context. Uh, It was almost unprecedented to talk about God in this particular way. 
It wasn't entirely unprecedented because in the Hebrew scriptures and in the Old Testament, uh, it sometimes talks about God as the father of the nation of Israel or the nation of Israel being God's son, things like that. But, but this is very different. Jesus is not just talking about his father, about the father as a kind of like the father of the nation. Uh, he's using the term father as his own father. He's using the term father in an intimate kind of way. It's a term of endearment. It's reflecting the bond of intimacy, the unique bond of intimacy between Jesus and God. And it's full of joy. Look at verse 22. Jesus is in the middle of rejoicing in God, and he says, no one knows the Father, or who, sorry, no one knows who the Son is except for the Father, and who the Father is except for the Son. Consider the intimacy of that line. What it means is something like this. It's as if Jesus is saying, nobody knows me like my Father knows me. No one knows me so deeply and thoroughly and completely as my Father knows me. And I know him back in the same way. I, I, all that I am is his delight. And all that he is, is my delight. Emmanuel, um, deep inside your soul and mine, uh, there's a desire and a hope and a need to know someone and to be known all the way down to the core of who we are. And deep within us is a desire and a hope and a need to right there at the core of who we are to love someone and to be loved in that place of vulnerability. And if you could peer into Jesus's, the core of who he is, right there at the center, you would find a heart that is perfectly known and perfectly knows back. A heart that is perfectly loved by his father and a heart that perfectly loves his father back. And that is the direction of Jesus' joy. It's why Jesus is the most fulfilled human being that has ever lived. That's the direction of his joy. And that joy animates all of Jesus' other joys. It's not a joy that's based on circumstance. It's a joy that's based upon delighting in his Father. And this helps explain one of the reasons... Uh, the direction of Jesus's joy is so crucially important. Turn over to the first reading in the very first line, page 7, verse 51, it says this. When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now, Emmanuel, that does not mean that Jesus just chose to swing by Jerusalem to catch up with some friends, okay? We know from the context that Jesus is well aware what's going to happen to him at Jerusalem. He knows he's going to go to Jerusalem, and he knows he's going to suffer. He knows he's going to be arrested. He knows he's going to be tortured, and he knows he's going to die. And this moment, that verse, 51, is where Jesus chooses to embrace that new direction. This is the moment when Jesus uh, turns away from comfort. And he turns away from popularity. He could have been huge. This, at this moment, he could have been huge. But he turns away from that. And he turns away from achievement. 
He could have rejoiced that the spirits were subject to him, but he doesn't. Instead, he turns towards suffering, and he turns towards pain, and he turns towards sacrifice, and he embraces death, and he embraces the cross. That's the new direction. And the question is, why? Why would he make that new direction? And the answer is that the direction of his joy determined the direction of his life. The direction of his joy directed him towards the cross. Why do I say that? Well, we're going to do a lot of flipping back and forth. Go back to the end again. Go back to where Jesus is rejoicing in his Father. And look for verse 21. Do you see that part of the thing that Jesus is delighting in is the Father's will? For this was your will. Jesus loves the Father, and part of loving the Father is loving his will. Well, meaning what he, he rejoices in, uh, part of the thing he loves about his Father is the thing his Father chooses to do. Well, the next time we get to hear Jesus pray, he also mentions the Father's will. Only this time he's not rejoicing. This time he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's in agony. It's the night before he dies. And in the midst of his prayer, he says, Father, if this cup can go away from me, if, if there's a, a path that doesn't include the cross, I want that one. But then he says, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. In other words, he embraced the cross. It was his joy in the Father's will that led him to embrace the cross, despite its shame and its pain. And Emmanuel, it's impossible to overstate the importance of that moment and the importance of Jesus' joy. Because as Christians, the Christian tradition uh, doesn't believe that Jesus' death was just a tragic martyrdom. We believe that it was an intentional act of self-sacrifice aimed at defeating evil and changing the world. And it's why you and I are here right now. And it was Jesus' joy in the Father. It was Jesus' joy in his Father's will that animated that decision. It animated everything. The direction of Jesus' joy determined the direction of his life, and the direction of Jesus' life went through the cross, and it changed the world. And if you're a Christian, it changed your eternity. But now what does that mean about us? That's what animates Jesus' joy, but what animates our joy? Well, for that, I want you to notice something odd in our reading. Did you notice all the rejection that happens in our reading? Lots of people reject Jesus. Uh, there's a Samaritan village that rejects Jesus. The disciples want to call down fire, and Jesus is like, oh, let's keep walking. Okay. Um, but then uh, there's a bunch of other towns that end up rejecting Jesus, and Jesus calls them out really sharply. And then, at the end of the first reading, there's this weird moment where three people try to volunteer with Jesus, verse 57, and Jesus challenges all of them really kind of sharply. To one, he says, uh, if you're going to follow me, you're going to be homeless. Uh, to another, he says, um, if you're going to follow me, don't go to your dad's funeral. Uh, to another, he says, uh, if you're going to follow me, don't prioritize your family. Now, what, my question is, what's all this about? Uh, 
why do some, some of these towns, reject Jesus so strongly? And on the other hand, why does Jesus uh, sharply challenge some of the very people who claim to want to follow him? What's going on? Well, all of this has to do with Jesus diagnosing the direction of our joy. Let me explain what I mean. Again, go back to the end, Jesus rejoicing in his Father. Um, there's something very humble about Jesus' rejoicing in his Father. And you can see the humility in a couple different ways. But one way you can see the humility is this. Jesus, in verse 21, says... Uh, well, when he's rejoicing in God, he says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. Do you catch that? What he's saying is he's receiving everything from his Father as a gift. And it's a little bit like he's a child who's receiving the very best things from his Father. Which is odd because we know from the rest of the scripture that Jesus is equal with his father. And yet he's not insisting upon his equality with his father. He's submitting to his father and he's humbly receiving uh, authority from his father. He's like a little child. And according to Jesus, something similar has to happen in us. And that's in verse 21. Jesus says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding, and you re you've revealed them to little children. And this is the point, Emmanuel. You have to be humble like a child to receive what Jesus wants to give. And that has to do with the direction of our joy for this reason. If the direction of my joy is primarily towards myself, if I rejoice, for instance, in my wisdom and my understanding, or if I, the direction of my joy is uh, focused upon uh, gaining a comfortable life, or even having a great family life, then the risk is that I will end up being blind to the joy that Jesus is offering. Now keep that in your mind and go back uh, to Jesus in the first reading, verse 51. Somebody comes up to Jesus and he says, hey, I'm going to follow you wherever you go. And Jesus responds, in effect, if you're going to follow me, you're not going to have a home. Do you still want in? In other words, Jesus is saying, if your deep joy is rooted in security and comfort, that's going to have to change. You need a redirection of your joy. And then right after that, Jesus recruits these two guys who appear to be willing to follow him, but they both want to take care of family stuff. One wants to go and bury his father. One wants to uh, stop in at home and greet his family. But Jesus challenges them as if to say, your deepest joy, if your deepest joy is rooted in your family, then that's going to have to change. It's going to have, we need a redirection of joy, even away from good things. Let me bring this to us. Emmanuel, when we reject Jesus, it's because there's something deep within us that is whispering in our ear, and the whisper in our ear is this. You can find a better joy someplace else other than in Jesus. 
The little voice in our head says, direct your joy towards things like success or family or achievement or comfort. Direct your joy, says the little voice, to yourself, one way or the other. And on the other hand, when Jesus comes to us and challenges us, Jesus says, I'm going to have to redirect your joy. I'm going to need to dethrone those joys so that I can be the joy underneath all your joys, just like my father is the joy underneath all of my joys. And the problem is, whenever we resist Jesus, that's the battle that's raging. The question is, will I surrender to Jesus' joy, or will I manufacture my own joy? And all of this matters a great deal. Because the direction of your joy will determine the direction of your life. And so the question is, what is the direction of your joy, Emmanuel? And here's the trouble with that question, and this is going to get heavy. If you know yourself well at all, you'll know a truth that's true of all of us. That is, the default direction of my joy is towards myself, one way or the other. And therefore, the default direction of my joy leads me to, to resist Jesus, or to quarantine Jesus in a limited area in my life, or to reject Jesus outright. And this is where it gets heavy, because in chapter 10, verse 16, Jesus says this, the one who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. Meaning to reject Jesus is to reject God. And this explains why Jesus is so sharp in his rebuke and in his challenge. Because he warns the towns that are rejecting him, and he warns these disciples who want to follow him with provisions or with caveats or on their own terms. He, he challenges and warns all of them because Jesus knows that the direction of our joy will lead the direction of our lives. And if my, the direction of my joy is to myself, then given time, it will lead to greater self-absorption and deeper pride and increasingly strong rejection of God. And if we let that play out through our lives, it leads to bad places. And if we let that play out over the course beyond this life, it leads to eternal death. Because hell is the result of narcissistic joy, the pursuit of a narcissistic kind of self-oriented joy. It never delivers joy, but it always promises. And the more we become self-absorbed, the more it will lead us to eternal death, and that process will just compound eternally. And that's why it matters. The direction of your joy is the direction of your life. However, the good news is that the direction of Jesus' joy led him to the cross. It led him to Jerusalem. And in a very surprising way, the direction of Jesus' joy led him to a kind of hell. A hell on the cross. Not because he deserved it but because he volunteered to be a substitute for those who did deserve it. 
And his death and his resurrection meant that anyone who says yes can be forgiven and reconciled to the Father, that we can come into that intimacy with the Father that Jesus enjoys, he can share that with us, despite the fact that everything within us has deserved otherwise. But the tragedy is that some of us that are wise and understanding, in quotes, um, very often we're the ones that are ignorant of our need for that forgiveness. But friends, if you can see your need, and if you're willing to accept it like a little child, then you can receive the privilege that Jesus deserves, the privileged reconciliation with God. Can you see that the joy of Jesus is a generous kind of joy? And yet, it doesn't even stop there. Forgiveness would be good enough, but it doesn't stop there. Do you notice that when Jesus rejoices in his Father, he rejoices in the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit's specific role is to redirect the joy of our hearts. The Holy Spirit comes and reorients us so that we place Jesus and joy in Jesus at the center of who we are. The Spirit's specialty is to come and to take, take Jesus' joy in his Father and replicate that into our lives. And when that happens, just like Jesus turned his face towards Jerusalem and embraced the Father's will, so we find ourselves turning our face to the face of Jesus Christ, looking at him and saying yes to Jesus' will, yes to his commands, yes to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow Jesus. We want to say yes. Why? Because we, we're looking into the eyes of our beloved. So Emmanuel... The direction of your joy determines the direction of your life, and the direction of your life unveils the direction of your joy. Bring your joy, the self-oriented joy, the, the false joys. Bring them to Jesus Christ. He wants to make them new, and he will give you his Holy Spirit. And you will look into the face of your beloved and know the love that you have always desired. Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com slash give.